0: Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present.
1: You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living
2: being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us.
0: Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with... Scott Tobias. Rachel Handler. And... Keith Phipps. And behind the boards, as usual, Genevieve Kosky. We all firmly believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current release. This week, I fain would give to thee a pair of period pieces about good, evil, self-righteousness, and murder, as we consider two dread-soaked movies where Christianity and paganism face off, and neither one winds up looking blameless or blessed.
2: Rachel, dost thee ken wondrous well what we be about this, e'en? Yeah, you have not put in the five years of research necessary to earn talking (laughs) like that. (laughs) But writer-director Robert Eggers did for his debut film, The Witch. The film is set in 1630s New England, and Eggers took the archaic dialogue and the situations directly from documents from the era in order to to make the film more realistic, which is an interesting goal for a feature about a Puritan family banished to the wilderness and fighting both a supernatural force and their own paranoia and superstition. This week, we're going to examine what's going on in The Witch and see how it contrasts with another film about superstition, paranoia, exile, and fervent religious beliefs, the 1973 cult classic The Wicker Man, written by playwright Anthony Schaeffer and directed by Robin Hardy. So Tasha, I assume we're going to find out how to get burned.
0: Oh, good Lord, no. That's from the terrible 2006 remake of The Wicker Man starring Nicolas Cage. We'll be bringing that film into the conversation as well, just because it fits so well with some of the things we want to address about how the witch, the original Wicker Man, and religion in general have all addressed topics like women, sexuality, self-denial, and freedom. But our primary aim here is to look at how Robin Hardy's film and Robert Eggers' film both deal with dread, with history and authenticity, and especially with music. Now, please join me in jumping naked through this fire we've kindled in the podcast studio for parthenogenesis purposes. We're going to go back in time to see what fundamentalism and polytheism in American England have to say to each other. The Wicker Man is one of those nearly didn't happen films that we're lucky to have gotten at all. It's a weird, idiosyncratic movie by a first-time director who trained as an abstract fine artist in Paris and was looking to get in film primarily as a day job to support himself. It was financed by a young millionaire looking to salvage the failing British film studio had just taken over, and looking for a cheap shocker that could be shot quickly to prove that he hadn't just bought the studio to strip mine its assets. By the time the film was finished, the studio had been sold to EMI, and director Robin Hardy had the film taken away from him by a studio head who felt that the Wicker Man was trash. Around 20 minutes of the movie were cut against Hardy's will, it was barely marketed or released, and to the extent it was marketed, it was as a horror film. The Citizen Kane of horror movies, to be exact. In that last respect, The Wicker Man has some similarities with Robert Eggers' movie The Witch, currently in theaters, and currently laboring a bit under the weight of the buildup that typed it as the scariest film out of Sundance. In both cases, viewers had been promised they were about to see something that would pin them to their seat backs in terror, came away somewhat baffled by what they actually got. But in both cases, they also came away with an ending that's hard to shake and with a creeping sense of dread. In spite of its troubled beginnings, The Wicker Man has lingered on for decades, on the edge of cult filmdom, largely on the strength of that ending, and of a stellar performance by Edward Woodward, that's interestingly (laughs) difficult to say, as Scottish policeman Neil Howie. In the film, Sergeant Howie receives an anonymous letter warning him that a child has gone missing on the private island of Summer Isle. He flies out in a seaplane and begins to interrogate the residents, but their responses are contradictory and often easily and quickly revealed as lies. Before long, the pagan rituals he witnesses and the evidence of pagan belief around him convince him that the girl was either murdered as a sacrifice or is being held somewhere in preparation for one. His self-righteousness and anger carries him through the hunt to that unforgettable ending, which, frankly, there is no way to fully discuss The Wicker Man without revealing. So if you haven't seen the film, we honestly advise you to go watch it and come back to this podcast later. But the strength of the film isn't just in the big reveal. Hardy and sleuth playwright Anthony Schaefer adapted David Pinner's book Ritual for the Wicker Man, and they took from the book a depth of knowledge about England's centuries of polytheistic culture and nature worship and the rituals around it, particularly around fecundity and sympathetic magic. There's a haunting quality to the film's specific and repetitious use of music. There's a frank sexuality hanging over the Wicker Man, inspired by fertility rites, and focused specifically to contrast with Sergeant Howie's virginal, austere morality and self-control. The film is memorably lurid, hitting an apex when Britt Eklund's character dances naked in an attempt to lure Sergeant Howey into breaking his Christian vows. And there's a primal terror hanging over the film, not just of sin and death, but an openly religious dread of hell and damnation and the torments of the afterlife. In that respect, the film again has a lot in common with The Witch, with its battle between a cringing Christian family in the 17th century wilderness and the forces stalking them. So, guys, let's talk about this, this strange, erotic, religious musical from the 1970s and what it has to do with a strange and only somewhat erotic non-musical in theaters right now. We're going to talk in the second half of this week's conversation about whether these films are actually scary and what it says about cinema that that's, that's such a contentious topic right now. But I want to start by dialing back a little bit and ask, are these films horror?
1: I guess they're classified as such. I, I think the classification for The Wicker Man is folk horror. I think you could probably make the case a stronger case for the witches being horror. There is a a genre component there that Eggers, I think, was trying to to strike. But uh, I don't think we necessarily need the labels. Um, I mean, I guess I'm going to talk a little bit later about the whole question of is it scary as being a an important metric or a, a valid metric in deciding whether a horror film works, quote unquote, or not. But I think it's more about, if we want to focus on The Wicker Man, really just more about being transported to this very strange, disconcerting place and living within it and taking in whatever ambiance it has to offer you. If you want to call that horror, you can call it horror because it's certainly strange, but uh, it, doesn't, it certainly doesn't operate like a normal horror film.
0: I ask mostly because Robin Hardy has resisted the horror label and has been really uncomfortable with it. I'm wondering if you guys feel uncomfortable with it or, or you feel it doesn't really matter and it's just, it's only a question for the people putting out posters or DVD labels. Like, does it matter to you? Do you walk in with expectations if you're told it's a horror movie?
2: I do, but I, I mean, I, I think both of these movies were very much horror films. As a horror fan, I, I identified them as such and I didn't have a problem putting them in that genre. And they're also my favorite kind of horror films because because they deal with not, I mean, the supernatural's in there, but really it's about the horrible things that people are capable of doing to each other, which to me is always the most frightening. Like, you know, movies like The Shining or Ingmar Bergman, which sort of verge on horror at times, those type of really dark human nature films. Those are my favorite types of horror films. And, and both of these fit that criteria. Jason Kaufman had a great piece on Medium on horror fandom gatekeeping and why we can't have nice things and talking about how horror is much more expansive than just saw on Halloween. And it's about sort of lizard brain horror, the fear of the dark the fear of nature fear of the unknown fear of other people this is all him writing so to me that's very very resonant
3: yeah I mean I, I have no problem calling either of them horror I think they fit there better than any other uh, genre if we had to put a label on it and I think they're both tapped into the horror tradition in, in different ways um, more I guess the wicker man's more sort of the the uncanny and more like you know something you'd see on the twilight zone if, if, in, in that tradition than anything else but I mean the witch has a witch in it uh, which I think <laughs> uh, pretty much puts it squarely in the horror genre as far as I'm concerned.
0: I mean, one of the things that interests me is both of these directors were first-time directors who had no experience with the horror genre and not really any interest in the horror genre as far as I can tell. Like, Eggers' interest seems to be very much steeped in... In period and historicity and recreating like a very specific time and place. And as far as I can tell, Robin Hardy's interest was in getting paid. <laughs> I mean, I read an interview with him where he, he basically said, I was an artist and I was interested in financing my art, and I thought film would be a, a good way to go into it.
1: Would that mean then you would credit Anthony Schaefer really with? Because you talked in the opening about this incredible depth of knowledge about, you know, centuries of polytheistic culture and nature worship. And I mean, I think a lot of, there's certainly. A, a lot of that stuff that informs the world of that film and brings it to, to, to life in the, much the same way that Robert Eggers' research brings the witch to life. You would credit that more with Schaefer than Hardy's artistry.
0: I think it, some of it comes from Schaefer, who seems to have a definite interest in it. A lot of it seems to come from the original book, the David Penner book. Mm-hmm. And I don't know a lot about Penner, but he does seem to have had a, a real interest in in folklore and specifically ritual and tradition the book's called ritual i haven't read the book so i can't tell but i've read a lot about it and just as an aside spoilers for a book from 1967 (laughs) here guys the ending of the wicker man the movie you know that indelible ending Mm -hmm. is schaefer's invention the book ends (laughs) with the Brett Eklund character equivalent uh, is found horribly murdered and the Sergeant Howie equivalent leaves. It's not an island. It's a little Cornish town. And he leaves. And it turns out that he's been doing the murders all along because he's got multiple personalities. No. And he's <laughs> and he's horribly divided in his no. head because he's this devout Christian, but he's got like secret pagan inner leanings. Did Donald Kaufman write the... the <laughs> I am pretty sure that he did and that it was actually called Ritual of the Three. So you can credit Schaefer with with like, a lot of the energy and the twists of Sleuth, which is a story I really, really enjoy. So, I mean, the man's got chops. I can't definitively tell you where any particular element came from. Those are just kind of my guesses.
1: Well, I guess maybe we could talk a little bit about Hardy's contributions, because I think the visual style of the film is compelling. And it almost reminds me, it seemed almost like Altman-esque in a way, sort of just dropping into this strange world in a very 70s kind of way. It incorporates a lot of the music, you know, you get a sense of the culture of the island, you know, it's not plotty in that sense i mean I, I, the story does move forward pretty well but it really is more about getting a sense of what this sort of pagan culture is, is like and, and catching it almost in a not programmatic way in a very relaxed uh way that you kind of associate with films in the 70s
0: he also i mean hardy really loved his weird angles his extreme low angles mm-hmm. his extreme high in the angles. bar scene yeah yeah, I I mean what do you what do you make of the direction in the film, Rachel? No,
2: I mean again I was brought back to Ingmar Bergmanage. I kept thinking of that throughout just the low angles and the sort of very obvious sort of surreal nature of that and It
3: just is- I think it kind of feeds into the, the sense of, uh, the unsettling sense of right. the experience of the protagonist. It's is kind of thrown into this world that, where things are skew. So mm-hmm. you know, it makes, kind of makes sense that right.
0: way. I mean, it's really rough in places as a directorial experience for me. There's, I guess we should mention that there have been so many different cuts of this film because there was the original cropped theatrical version. There was They finally found some of the footage and restored it. There was a director's cut. Then there was what's out now is the final cut, which restored some different footage footage but cut some of the director's cut footage there are five different versions of this film so i don't like what version did everybody end up seeing the one
2: that scott sent me
1: I saw the 88-minute version, which I assume is the, what, the least, one. the least desirable
2: one. Yeah. How
3: does it open? Does it open with with uh, Howie and church? Or mm-hmm. okay, no.
0: all right. He my so... version opened because the version I have is the box set from the 90s that had the theatrical cut and the quote quote unquote extended edition. That's how it's labeled. So my version starts with him flying in on a seaplane. Uh, uh, so so it it, yeah. mine is
3: the is the final cut, which I believe came out a couple years ago. I got it because it was the one that was on Blu-ray, and it opens. The footage is really rough, but it but it It's good. It opens with Sergeant Howie in church, and like he's there with his fiance. You see him worshiping. You know, it's it's probably the most obvious way to establish his piety, but nonetheless, it's a nice atmospheric touch. And you get a a look at him. I think it's kind of important to see him before he goes to Summer Isle, kind of see the world he comes from, rather than just the world he's he's dropped into. I don't, you know, I almost don't agree with that, and right.
1: I, it, my argument against it is, is we'll get into it maybe a little bit later. Is seeing the 2006 remake of yeah. the Wicker Man. And like, <laughs> I was say when that. the hell are we going to get a summer? <laughs> Why are we spending so much time <laughs> waiting to get there? I just, I like the fact that he, he's there on a, on a mission. He's got this letter, and then is revealed to us. I think pretty quickly that, that he is pious, that he has these beliefs, and then he's put sure. in this situation that's very uncomfortable to him. And I think the fact that we're, we're thrown in that situation so dramatically really heightens the power of the Brit. Ecclesi- and dance scene I think we had t- too much lead up to that you know I don't I don't know I think the. I think we get this the, the sweat comes really fast in that scene <laughs> because uh because we're just like he's really confronted with something shocking to him and a little bit to us as well it's a very strange and kind of amazing scene
0: so wait wait does the 88 minute version start with him landing on summer isle yes yeah Oh, wow.
2: Well, the, and I read that that Hardy later said that he preferred that, that he thought the intro was way too obvious and, like, ham-fisted, the part where they were getting it with him on land. But maybe he was just saying that because he couldn't find a longer version or
0: something. I mean, there's a scene that feels really telling in the extended cut where he's in the seaplane and he comes in like he's based in the Scottish Highlands and he comes into the police station and uh, there are a couple of other cops there making fun of him and making fun of the fact that he's saving himself for marriage that his girlfriend has been like patiently waiting but they've never had sex Mm -hmm. and one of them says something like you know when they finally get married she's going to spend more time on her knees in church than on her back in bed and they guffaw over it and it becomes this kind of ribbled moment that actually really ties in with a lot of what you get on Summer Isle. Mm -hmm. So it makes Summer Isle feel less isolated in that way and it's, and it's more like there are a lot of people in the world that aren't like neil howie i don't know what you get out of that necessarily but like i i appreciated that as a moment
2: well and they say, he says he's a virgin pretty early on in the 88 because he's he tells the he tells Britt eklund's character he's like oh, i'm saving myself for marriage that's how he explains himself yeah that wasn't in my cut yeah that's there's like a really awkward but also i read that in the in your version she seduces him on the second night not the first night right it felt very abrupt in our version, like all of a sudden he just got there and she's seducing him within like minutes of meeting him and you're like, Where did this come from? Like he's not, you know, that hot. Well you get, a, <laughs>
1: well, you, get you do get the you do get the prelude in the bar though. That's right, right. So which again? But- it was another but just still, strange it's confusing. moment in
0: the movie. I was
2: confused.
0: <laughs> well, okay. The, the the one thing that seems really significant to me that I don't think was in the 88-minute cut is on the first night, he goes for a walk, and there are people having sex in the fields. Oh, that was in it. That was in there? So is the thing where he's in his room, and Lord Summerisle comes to the window and offers Brett Eklund's character a boy? No, no. Because that's also—
3: That's in my cut. I kind of wish it wasn't.
0: <laughs> really? All right. Yeah. So How tell, me, tell me what your reaction so, was. I, I guess kind
3: of, my reaction to it is, it kind of connects to my reaction to the movie in general, which I think starts and ends wonderfully. And there's a lot of really good stuff in the middle. But- Whenever there's too much explaining or too much like moving away from his point of view, which that scene moves away from his point of view, and and that's kind of my biggest problem with it. And when you get the detailed lineage of Lord Summerisle and and how things happened, I think it's a little bit flat. It's just a little uh, too explainy. But uh, you know, it's more of a quibble than a than a, a huge complaint. But uh, yeah, I think the tops and tails of the movie are, are a lot stronger than the middle. I would Boy. just
0: that that one scene though, like so. What happens is Lord Summerisle like comes to. Brett Eklund's window and says you know I'm presenting this boy to you as a sacrifice to Aphrodite and she's like send him on up and he's maybe 14 and he's very clearly there to lose his virginity right and how he like listens in there's like moaning from the next door wow but what's more significant is the boy passes through the bar downstairs and there's complete silence as he passes through and then he goes upstairs and you know the the guys who are always hanging out at the bar singing start singing this song that's basically about a boy having his first sexual experience and the faces, uh, I, like this is one of the moments that strikes me most of the entire movie is all of them are looking up at the ceiling. All of them are thinking about what's going on in this room. And they all have this just, you say ew, but they all have this just like soft, gentle, nostalgic look on their face. Like they're all there with them in the room. And it's the maybe the only moment in the film, apart from the the horrible singing and, and dancing at the end where everybody's so happy, where you actually feel like they're a community. And not just a community, but that there's joy in this paganism that isn't like heavily, heavily creepy. Mm-hmm. This is only kind of creepy.
2: Just slightly. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Well, anyway, I, I mean, I, I do kind of want to talk a little about the rough edges in The Wicker Man because I do feel it's a, a flawed film. Like, I mean, do you want to get into any specifics, Keith? Is, or is, is there any particular scene that you think just goes on too long?
3: I mean, the one I always have trouble with is one where, where Lord Silverile, like I said, is explaining things, which I don't know how you—that's important information to get in there—but it seems to be it's conveyed in the in the most pedestrian way possible. No, no offense to Christopher Lee, who's a, who's a great actor. It just it just kind of like there seems to be like all this intrigue and and what is going on here and what's happening and then and then the one scene it's like here's what's going on here and what's happening it it's a little a little too much too quickly i think boy i no i know all right all right well i just i think Christopher Lee is just
1: so perfect in the role and, he, and 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 he delivers all this information with such kind of like wit that has kind of i guess it kind of dances on camp a little bit but in that delicious christopher lee <laughs> way i just i i like it i get, it's good information and i think it's and it's delivered in a cinematic way i mean you're he gives you sort of a tour of the estate and uh, it's gives you know a really i guess iconic i hate using that word but iconic actor um a little bit of room to breathe and and uh make his sort of presence known i i, I like all that stuff okay. but I, I don't have any issues i maybe i maybe the problem is i don't i don't really have a whole lot of problems with the film I don't feel like it sags at all in the middle I don't uh, all want to overstate stuff, all it all the stuff that Howie discovers is fascinating to me and, re- and re- reveals all these new facets about the way this island works so
0: uh, I gotta say the scene where he goes to the library and reads out yes, loud to us on say. paganism is the it's the okay. 1973 it's such like interesting and useful information and it, every single bit of it's used but it's still exactly the 1973 equivalent of a scene today where Bella sits down under the computer yeah. and looks up vampire. Yeah. That's the other one Google. I was going to say. Okay. I, yeah. I, yeah, that I, bothered that. me.
1: But that's like Suspiria. Suspiria has one of those scenes too where it's like you know when to go to the bathroom in Suspiria because it's like you're at you're a university and the guy's going to talk for like 15 <laughs> minutes.
0: What is witches? Let us tell you what witches <laughs> is. Rachel, I feel like the the two of us may either like deadlock or decide it one way or the other on Christopher Lee. I find him just painfully camp. Oh, and yeah. I find him hilarious yeah. in this film. But like, what's your take on Christopher no, Lee? No, I
2: agree. But I think it's hard to divorce him from like all the other stuff that he's done. Maybe that's particularly why. But mm-hmm. I agree. I mean, he was delightful and funny. And that made his character, I think, even more sort of horrifying because he's basically admitting that he's tricking all of these people into you know doing all this insane pagan stuff like burning down strangers just like for his own yeah spoiler whatever (laughs) for his own glee i don't know
3: (laughs) is there ambiguity there to this movie is there like sort of like yeah it's sort of it's a deception but it seems to work for everyone
2: but he admits that he's like everyone thought it was the gods but we just planted some fruit sure he straight up says says that that. you interpret yeah he's like
0: all right i'm really curious about this like do you do you all think that he's just faking that he's playing them i thought so
3: no I didn't think so. Huh. But I, uh, am I wrong? Um, is he a true believer in paganism? I, I got the sense that he wasn't. That he mm. wasn't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hmm.
0: uh, again, this is sort of a, a moment where <laughs> one, can... of the, one of the one cut scenes, because immediately oh. after he says, sends... <laughs> well, different my movies. Version, it was... In yeah. my version, he says, I'm totally a pagan for sure. Really, what? guys. And holds up a sign that says, 100% <laughs> pagan. No, he uh after he sends the boy up to Eklund, he has this little bit of poetry that he reads literally while watching snails f- have sex. <laughs> Sorry, explicit tag. Uh, while watching that w- that a pair of been worth the explicit yeah. tag. While watching a pair of snails engaged in, con- in congress of a personal nature. <laughs> He recites this little poem about the beasts of the field and how they are not proud and they bend their knee to no master. And it really feels felt to me.
3: They do not make me sick discussing their duty to God. Not one of them kneels to another or to his own kind that lived thousands of years ago. Not one of them is
0: respectable or unhappy. All I mean, I assumed he was a true believer. Well, I guess
2: it goes back to, I mean, that's the question underneath the whole movie is how much of it is a performance for Howie and how much of it is actually how they're acting all the time.
0: They kind of commit to what they believe in. I mean, I think it's a super interesting question Mm because, like, I mean, if you look at Eggers the Witch, obviously this is a very believing community. But, like, even they have apostates, basically. In any religious community, there's somebody who's just kind of crossing their fingers and gritting their teeth and going with it. Right there's not really a sense of like outsiders here. Everybody's in on the conspiracy Mm -hmm. and nobody warns him. Like nobody says anything to him. Right. They're all down.
2: Paganism rocks.
0: Yeah. I think they're happy. I mean, come on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It seems like a lot of fun. (laughs) Seems (laughs)
2: awesome.
0: They they get pretty much all the the field sex and fire jumping anybody yeah. could possibly. It's a, I'm like,
2: what's wrong exactly? Well, I mean, let's... I'm a pagan now, guys. <laughs> <laughs> this is the film that converted you. Was it this or The Witch? No, it was this one. Was seen made it seem way cooler. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, you
0: know, there people... is the
3: matter of sacrificing,
2: people. right? That,
0: but so yeah,
3: perhaps we have some moral
0: qualms it's about fine. that. But I mean, that guy was a prig anyway. Well, let's. I mean, let's talk about. <laughs> but no it's you're true. right he is it's a he's a jerk it's i mean jerk. let's let's talk a little about him i i think one of the most interesting things in the movie is how your sympathies shift throughout this film i mean nobody deserves what he what happens to him but he kind of Deserves what happens to him, yeah. Like, how how do you feel about kind of how that character changes over the course of the film?
1: You know, with this film, I'm going to compare it to another film. That's my only way of thinking about it. Is uh, you've seen the film Seconds, the John Frankenheimer film Mm -hmm. Seconds. If for those who have not, it stars Rock Hudson as a guy who changes his identity quite literally and becomes goes from being this guy from upstate New York who is just living a normal suburban life to being, you know, an artist on the coast who's living sort of a hippie. Life or what, whatever counted for hippies, and what it would be nineteen sixty six. It was mid 60s
3: Yeah, it was, it was. There was a counterculture. Sure,
1: there was a counterculture. So, so he. There's a scene that reminded me so much of the Mayday stuff in uh, the Wicker Man, uh, where they're uh, crushing grapes, and it's like this. It's a super intense scene, and you know, very sexual and very you know, and, and, it's, and it's shocking to him because his conscience is still uh, stuck in uptight upstate New York. He doesn't. He's not used to seeing this, and and uh, the position I think both. The Wicker Man and Second's Takes is somewhere in the middle of these two <laughs> worlds, in my opinion. I, I don't see it as being an endorsement or taking sides with one aspect or another. I think it just gets you into that situation and it allows you to kind of live in the ambiguity of it rather than necessarily have you feeling definitively on the side of the of the Summer Isle people or, or definitively on the side of this you know, investigator.
3: I'm going to defend Howie because yeah he, he is he is sort of a you know, uptight prig uh, self-righteous but everything he does is motivated by what he feels is his need to unravel the mystery of a girl who's either dead or, or missing and I think Think you know his motives are ultimately good, and and he goes about it in a way that that takes no respect for the the people he encounters, or, or tries to impose his view of the world on a place that does not want to uh, take it. But his heart is in the right place, so yeah, let's let's have uh, and and he is also not a hypocrite. So let's have some uh, let's have some respect for. for, for
2: <laughs> He's kind of a hypocrite, I think. How,
3: how, how, how so? I mean,
2: there's that line where um, he and Laura. Summer al are talking and he's like what's going on why are those people jumping over the fire and and he says they're trying to get pregnant without sexual union and he says he's like what that's crazy and then Summer is like no like that's what happened with Jesus basically is their is there interaction and the, his motivations are on a surface level he's trying to find this girl but I think it's actually about this fear of exposing his religion as false or he's he's confronted with probably for the first time pe- people who don't believe in Jesus and don't believe in this exact form of religion that he's so strictly followed his entire life so I think a lot of what motivates him is just to sort of convince himself and convince these people that they're bad and wrong and that he's right
3: I think that's a spillover though for, from the main quest which is again <laughs> looking for for a girl who's gone missing that nobody else seems to be concerned about looking looking for and pushing through with that despite the indifference and opposition of everyone he encounters. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't necessarily think that, that being confronted with inconsistencies is the same as being a hypocrite. I, don't, I think he per- behaves in a, in a uh, consistent manner.
2: Well, I'm not saying it's hypocritical in that it's inconsistent i'm saying he's calling them insane for believing in something and that he and he believes in something just as sure ridiculous you know in theory i'm not sure Sure, sure. Hating no on all our Christian listeners. i'm a pagan but i still believe in no, I'm, <laughs> <kidding>. I'm jewish <laughs> <laughs> how much
0: parthenogenesis is there in the jewish religion? so much
2: we can't talk about it though <laughs> do you want to
0: jump through this fire over yeah, here or yeah. do you not want to be pregnant right now <laughs> See at the end of this reminds
1: me of that of that scene in uh Hail Caesar. Where you at the end of the scene you'd say, Eh
0: <laughs>
2: I'm that a rabbi a- in Hail Caesar. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah,
0: I they specifically target Howie because he's so self-righteous, and he's so stiff-necked that they know he's going to charge through all of this. I, like, anybody sensible would say, all right, I need to leave now. Like, I am alone in this situation. I'm clearly being lied to. Everybody is against me. And it's it's his sheer arrogance that makes him keep going. I think that you're right, and that he has a solid motivation. He really is worried about this girl. But so much of that comes from a place of, like, moral self-righteousness and superiority. And I think that's not only part of what Makes him unlikable in a way that makes the story interesting. But it also, I mean, it enables everything that they do to him.
2: I think he just really just needs to get laid. That's the problem with Howie.
0: Well, that would fix a lot of problems, including what happens to him in the because he wouldn't be any good right. to them. I mean, for me, the fact that they throw Britt Eklund at him super hard is indicative that like they really do give him a chance. I mean, they give him a chance to forswear himself, but they give him a chance to get out of what's done to him and he doesn't take it. And it's really difficult and you can kind of have some respect for him there you know <laughs> given what he turns down and how hard he works at it or can you like i don't know i'm not a red-blooded american male like-
1: yeah no i mean I, I i respect i suppose i i, I Idiocy. He, good good work <laughs> i don't know why why you would do that but How's boy, God? That, that scene yeah i mean i i you know, I've I liked this film quite a bit. I'm a cult movie person. Uh, I've studied that sequence quite, a, you know, as, uh, quite a bit. Um, What's uh,
0: that gesture that you're making right now, Scott? I don't know, uh,
1: but but it's it's, it's it's completely red in the face now. But I think that the film has an erotic component. I will say that is an understatement, and that scene is certainly, that comes through in about as powerful a way as cinema even has to offer. I mean, that's pretty much, other than the ending, maybe the most memorable sequence of the film. Um, And also, I think, is one where, again, Robin Hardy kind of comes through directorially. I mean, it's a very boldly staged sequence, just the way she dances is so Unusual and seductive and then and then there's a part of it where she's she's just looking directly into the camera which is a again that's a huge risk to sort of break the fourth wall but it takes the viewer out of voyeuristic position and kind of kind of engages them in a very exciting sort of way mm-hmm. um, you know that's that's all in the direction
3: I would say Britt Eklund's presence might have a role in the way and her body doubles <laughs> uh, two body doubles
1: but... oh
0: were there two I knew that there was a butt double because Hardy didn't like her butt I thought well she, didn't she was like pregnant
1: though I think she was oh, like was three, she? I think she was like three months pregnant. Oh wow! Which I wouldn't think would show very much, but still, um, I think that was well, on a body a, that small, it might. Yeah. So, so I think she was. I think there were two body doubles.
0: No, oh, that's incredible. Yeah. I didn't realize. That. Uh, and
1: and again, I did not know that until looking it up. It was. So it's
3: seamless in that that respect. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's pretty impressive, like shooting around that without it being noticeable. I I mean, I never would have known because it's, that scene is so confrontational. I mean, she is, she is so aggressive and that's, I think, part of what makes it exciting. I would think, especially in the 70s, there's something like coy and playful about it as a lot of the sexuality is in the movie. But it's also, I mean, she's, she's throwing herself out there.
1: Well, is it also too um, on the other side? Because we talk about his piety. I mean, isn't also about her asserting? their lifestyle as being superior as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, in that sequence, you get a sense of the central spiritual conflict of the film. I mean, it could not be expressed in a stronger way. I mean, that you know, of, of, you know, sin and temptation and whatever. I mean, that's all comes to the fore. And uh, and I guess maybe I, I should,
3: Keith, respect him more than, uh, <laughs> more than I have for... Uh, for turning that away. Because well, it's, it's, it's a power play. Team I happy. mean, it, as as you said, you know, it's a way to assert their way of life as superior to his. It's not necessarily about any of the reasons, apart from the obvious, any of the reasons why this man with the with his beliefs would want to have sex in the first place.
0: Well, there, I mean, there is a degree in the movie to which, like, Lord Summerisle represents the intellectual side of paganism, and she's just, like, purer the pure animal side. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think you get out of his little speech about, you know, the beauty of the animals and how they bend the need of no one is he's, I mean, he's talking about just kind of the primal power of doing whatever you want, which is, I mean, part of the kind of the paganistic, the polytheistic, the Satanistic, like all of these, these religions are kind of wound up in nature respected nature worship. And part of that is like worshiping natural urges and lusting after Brit Eklund is a pretty natural. <laughs> <her>. <laughs> Making
3: Christopher Lee's character, Lord Summerisle, the intellectual pagan and, and uh, Britt Eklund's character, the sort of the lusty, animalistic side of paganism. Are these progressive gender politics or what are, what are we looking at here?
0: I mean, it's not just a gender thing. It's also an age thing. Sure. Like, in the scene where he's singing to Ingrid Pitt, I think her name is, um, the school teacher, about, like, they're singing a, a lusty song about a hardy blacksmith, which <laughs> there is no traditional song about a blacksmith that is not about sex. <laughs> okay, except Blacksmith or Brandywine, which is about killing. But there might be some sex under there. Mostly it's about sex. And they're singing the song, and it's clearly foreplay. Like, there's a sexual side to him, too. There's a seductive side. But... But like in part, it's just she's young and beautiful and he's kind of he gets the sense of like old and and like he's had his time but I mean I don't know No, what do you think
2: well I don't know I'm thinking about it now and I, I'm trying to think about how the 2006 version made them all women and Ellen oh, Burstyn no. was Summer Isle, and <laughs> I think they tried I don't know what they were trying to say but ultimately it was like careful if women get too much power like here's what'll happen that was like the ultimate message of that wicker man
3: I, so. I'm just thinking about Christopher Lee as as old and past his prime in 1973 and then he worked for another 45
1: years right. <laughs> I know
0: but he didn't get many sexy leading man roles did <laughs> right. he um, well does
1: dresses a woman at the end? I don't know what the significance of that might be.
0: Oh, it's it's the primal man woman image, as explained right. to us in the library oh, slash right. Google okay. scene.
1: See, I shouldn't. I, maybe I maybe I just zoned out during yeah. that whole thing and thought it was good. But uh, yeah, they do explain okay. what they do explain what every little uh, what every costume person means, don't
3: they? It's Chekhov's reference check or something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we definitely should talk at least a little about the the 2006 Wicker Man, and I believe we have a a 2006 Wicker Man virgin. In yes, I. That's right. I, I was. A, I was. A, I, was a, I watched
2: a, it last night. Both of you sergeant, for the first time. I was sergeant
1: Howie of uh, of uh, of, uh, of the 2006 Wicker Man. Oh Is my
0: it? God! Confronted by the naked Brett Eklund of Nicholas Cage, <laughs> screaming. Yep.
1: Uh, well, that's the thing. I, I, mean, I certainly knew about the mummification of this movie. I'd seen all of the clips, right, uh, all the relevant too. clips. You know, how do you get burned and step away from the bike, which is my favorite. Why do people? <laughs> that's an underrated one. Step away from the bike with them holding the, and well, you yeah, uh, won't and, bring back your, and, yeah. you know, bees, which is not <laughs> even in the movie.
0: My bees, uh, bees. But
1: uh, I just, I think all of that just gets in the way of discussing just how purely craptastic this (laughs) thing is. And it just, it it has to be like one of the most misogynist films I've ever ever. seen in my life. You know, because it it transforms, of course, this, Summer Isle is now this horrible matriarchal society that, that Nicolas Cage has to punch his way through. <laughs> no, I just like, I, I cannot believe that it got made. And it makes me feel retroactively ashamed for for sticking up for Into the Company of Men, which a lot of people attacked for being a sort of a misogynist film, because I felt like, hey, that's that's totally within the world of. You should spell business. out the They're connection. They're both directed by uh, Neil Abute. I think it's okay to
3: defend. I mean, that's portrayal his, is his, his not, his not his endorsement, problem. but but yeah, he, that, uh, this is not. No, uh, but this is, this, <laughs> is a, this is.
1: Every single decision that is made is wrong. I mean, you get like
3: 15 or 20 minutes before you even get to summarize. <laughs> I think setting it, it, I don't think that this makes sense in America. Part of what makes the original Wicker Man so powerful is like sort of the sense of returning to what was there before Christianity, what was there before what Sergeant Howie believes in kind of swept in and washed all this away, or did it wash it all away? Did it all just kind of go underground? I mean, there's so much, they don't get into it that much, but I mean, so much of our Christian holidays that we celebrate, sorry, Rachel. I
2: celebrate
3: (laughs) them too, it's fine. I mean, we as a culture celebrate uh, in general our co-opting of of pagan holidays, you know, either the time or or you know the rituals involved in them, you know, from the Christmas tree to, you know, various things we associate with Easter. So there's kind of a sense that, like, it's kind of the return of the repressed. If you set this in England, if you set it in, in America, I don't know that it works that well.
1: At least he, you know, reconceptualized it as something, is repulsive as that concept Sure. Is. The other thing that bothers me about it, and this is a fundamental thing, is that Neil Butte is just not a sensualist <laughs> in, in the way that, Rob, I mean, you know, you enter the world of Summer Isle in the original Wicker Man, and it it's just, it's so fascinating and enveloping and immersive, and it, it, Butte just doesn't have that skill. I mean, he's a, you know, he doesn't have that skill. He's a writer, primarily. I think as a director, you know, he shows his limitations with Wicker but i really want to know what i've, I've talked and talked because i'm just this film is i saw it this afternoon and it's just i can't <laughs> stop getting Scott, angry about Scott it but.
0: actually came in and said as was we we're setting up the podcast came in and said he'd seen the movie for the first time this time and i said you're not allowed to say another word and i
2: want the full core <laughs> yeah, dump this, is on a, this my... was like
1: this was a uh, this was like an explosion of intensity uh but i want to know what uh, rachel thought of this. me
0: film. too
2: um it was hilarious I was laughing out loud for a really good portion of the film. It like was, the
1: beginning of it, like no, even, not in the beginning. The last the last thirty minutes are hilarious. Hilarious. Yeah,
2: I think that's what stuck with me is I couldn't stop laughing for a long time. I was like, "This is amazing." Um, it was horribly misogynistic. It was incredibly poorly done. Nicolas Cage was completely tonally off in every single scene. The flashbacks were absurd, and I don't. I, the thing with the girl in the car, then like she exploded into bees. I was just like, "What is going on in this movie?" <laughs> <laughs> it was so, um, like, tacky and just poorly handled and lazy. And, God, it was just embarrassing for everyone involved. I don't know. But mostly I was stuck with this. My, by the end, I was just delighted by the entire thing. Hmm.
0: Did you? I See, this is a problem that I always have when I, I like, I walked away from that film so... Like overwhelmed by how how openly and grossly misogynistic it, yeah, was, it was bad. that it was hard for me to laugh at yeah. it, and because I love the Wicker Man, the original right. Wicker Man mm-hmm. so much that the, I mean this was like watching somebody take like your beloved st- stuffed animal that you've had since you were an infant and defecate <laughs> on it and then jump up and down on it a few times. Right. So like it was hard for me to to just like laugh yeah. at it openly. Did any of the politics of it? Oh my god, it bothers- ruin it for
2: you? I mean it was horrifying. I was like, I literally can't believe this movie was made and people weren't, didn't raise a question about what it was saying about women and what happens when women get power. Did they cut out the men's tongues? Like, I, is yeah. that That's cu- heavily implied. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. I mean, it was just horrifying. What
1: was, it, what was the casting sessions even like for this thing? <laughs> like Ellen Burstyn and, right. and, like, and Lily Sobieski and, uh, and uh, Molly Parker, it's like, okay, here's the deal. This is about how horrible things would be if women were in charge. <laughs> Can you please be in our <laughs> they're menu? They're like,
2: sounds great. Amazing. I
3: will offer a very feeble defense okay, let, of what me. they're doing here. Oh, is, how exciting. Is, well, i say, no, the movie doesn't work at all. But perhaps, perhaps the idea is to offer sort of a, a funhouse mirror uh, as sort of like, you know, patriarchy is awful. What if it swung the other way? It might look a little bit like this, you know? Yeah. Mm. Um, I don't know. That's I, I, a, it's a that's a even tough, that's then
2: a, though it's like it's bad. Yeah.
3: Probably we don't get a sense of the patriot. We, we have to bring <laughs> that true. in with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm exasperating myself. No, but, but, good. But, good but, <laughs> but, it is. But, it is. But I've been doing for so things so over the top and arch that, that it, it, it almost you know. You are kind of horrified and amused. It's it's you, you're not going to mistake for anything that, that I can't. I, I give up. Never mind. <laughs> I, I, have heard, I have heard the argument that
1: you know Labute is in on the joke, um, and and I think maybe you could extend him a certain amount of. of he doesn't get to latitude, be in on the joke. Like, I think yeah,
2: it's a joke. We're yeah. Exactly. You know, like have it's, a woman make that joke. Then
0: that's. I mean, that's a really good point. But there's also just. I could see how in the hands of completely different actors and maybe a better director and with a better script, that theory could work fine. Mm -hmm. For me, one of the biggest problems of the film beyond Nicolas Cage is Kate Behan she is so vapid Mm -hmm. and one of the things that makes the original wicker man work for me is it is the rare conspiracy movie where the conspiracy holds up where it doesn't fall apart at the end where you don't wind up saying there's no way Mm -hmm. two people in power could have done all that Mm -hmm. or that the conspiracy could have gotten on the other other side of the world that quickly everybody's in on the planning and that's what makes it work they're all manipulating him they all know what the game is in the 2006 version the main carrier outer of the conspiracy is this woman who doesn't look like she has two brain cells to rub together. Yeah. She spends so much of the movie. He asks her a question and her, her response is, Durr. <laughs>
2: I mean, <laughs> but maybe she, I thought she was kind of doing that on purpose. Cause she just didn't know. But it's,
0: to... It doesn't matter if she's doing it on purpose. Right. It's so boring. No,
2: it is. And also it's crazy that the, uh-huh. the fact that she was just like shrug emoji when he asked her why she did this to him. <laughs> I was like, that's all we're going to get. I cannot think of a better way to transition
0: out of this (laughs) podcast for this episode than shrug emoji. Ah, all right so the the 1973 wicker man burning man emoji the 2006 (laughs) version shrug emoji all right so so, uh we'll we'll get more a little more into uh wicker men in general and how they contrast with uh with the witch in part two of this conversation but first we'd like to share some of the excellent listener feedback we got on our, our last episode comparing the coen brothers barton fink and hail caesar we got quite a few really terrific letters responding to this episode some of them were really long. So instead of spending the next half hour uh, reading all of them, we're going to give you some excerpts and post the rest at nextpictureshow.net. Uh, Rachel, you want to kick us off with a little feedback?
2: Here's one from Jason Eakin in Los Angeles, who suggests we miss some of the morality in Hail Caesar because none of us are practicing Christians or Catholics and we're all pagan. Um, <laughs> Jason writes, As a Christian, it's very easy to see Eddie Mannix as a Christ figure. One of Mannix's primary roles as a studio bigwig is that in his pursuit to produce good movies, he has to deal with countless scandals of actors, directors, writers. They confess to him, ask for his help, essentially unburdening themselves and putting the weight onto his shoulders. To take the idea further, we see him on the phone to the head of the studio. Naturally, the studio head can be seen as God, with Mannix's Christ figure as the embodiment of the studio's will, in the same way that Christ came to earth as God in the flesh. I'll leave the Holy Spirit out of this for now, although a sneaky argument could say it's the magic of the movies. So when Mannix goes to confession, it might not actually be the weight of his own trifles that he's actually there for. It's because of the weight of all of the burdens he's had to bear on behalf of his subjects. This certainly plays into his decision to stay at the studio instead of taking an easier job. He feels what we Christians might refer to as a calling to bear the sins, scandals, and chaos of the movie business and try to find a way to make something meaningful out of it. In other words, to redeem it.
1: That's a really good point, point. I, I and I kind of regret us not i mean we can only do so much i suppose but the spiritual aspect of hell caesar is important and is a big part of a lot of the coen brothers films particularly lately i guess i refer you to film spotting proper did an uh, uh, episode on Hail, Caesar that really gets into it and uh, is terrific. So if you want more on that, I would recommend our our, our sister podcast, Film Spotting.
0: And we always recommend Film Spotting. However, uh, before we get too deeply into that filter, we have a suggestion of another filter through which we could see the movie. Uh, Scott, you're up.
1: Cole Bauer from Minneapolis writes, The richness of Barton Fink really does lie in the layered complexity with which the Coen brothers have constructed a story worthy of numerous thematic interpretations. I saw it through a queer lens. A case could be made that Barton was really struggling with repression of sexuality and sexual identity. Subtle visual cues give evidence, such as the moment when Charlie shows Barton how to wrestle, and Barton subsequently lets his head rest on Charlie's shoulders or Barton finding comfort in the fact that he happens to have Charlie's shoes. Overt clues and dialogue further tie things in, such as the numerous references of Barton's work being quote-unquote fruity to the detectives questioning Barton, quote, you two have a six-sex thing? With which Barton answers with fading incredulousness, sex? He's a man. We wrestled. Uh, It doesn't take very much here to connect wrestling with homosexuality, and Barton's struggle to write such a film is as much a struggle to actually write a wrestling picture as it is to struggle with his possible avoidance and repression of his sexual identity as a gay man. Even his intimate moment with Audrey reinforces this struggle. As many gay men attempt relationships with women to reinforce a false identity of straightness or see it as a possible cure-all to attractions towards men, Audrey's death epitomizes the struggle with what is expected to what is the truth. Her death is the end of Barton's facade of straightness. And with that, his love of Charlie becomes more focused to the point where he doesn't want him to leave and cries upon him doing so. I could go on and on, but the fascination of this film is its invitation to audience participation. Whether my theory holds any water is up for debate, But that's not really the point. The point is that the Coens have made a movie that is so open to audience interpretation and participation that repeat viewings become a must and enjoyable ones at that. And what filmmaker doesn't want his work seen over and over?
0: So we have an argument for the Coens through a religious lens. We have an argument for the Coens through a gay lens or through any personal lens. Keith, what do you have?
3: Here's one from Andrew Wellman. As a Coen Brothers fan, I tend to reject the idea that their films need contextualizing. There was an article circulating a couple of months back about references found in the Hail Caesar trailer, which bothered me in that looking for Easter eggs and callbacks in Coen films is largely pointless. After listening to the only DVD commentary track they've ever done, for The Man Who Wasn't There, I tended to operate under the assumption that the primary motivation of the Coens is to create something which amuses them. Therefore, one of the things I like about their films is how self-contained each one of them are. In this day and age, of film franchises which deliberately leave loose plot threads that include Samuel L. Jackson epilogues to tease forthcoming films, everything one needs to grasp the substance of a Coen film is contained within the four corners of the movie screen. I've always felt that one of the reasons I tend to rate the Hudsucker proxy higher than other viewers is that I've never seen His Girl Friday and other films upon which Hudsucker is reportedly based. And certain objections voiced by some, 1930's design set in 1950, simply went over my head. Because of this, I'm not especially compelled by any theory that Barton Fink and Hale Caesar are meant to somehow relate to one another. I don't think there's, there's any particular deep meaning in the idea that the studio has the same name in both films, other than going back to my primary Cohen theory is simply amuse the brothers to do this, except the mystery.
0: Okay, so we have the Cohens through a religious lens. Through a gay lens, through any personal lens, or through no lens. What do we think about all this?
3: Well, I think the last one
1: sort of shuts things down a little <laughs> bit more than I would like. <laughs> I think it
3: shuts our podcast down.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think it shuts exactly down. Accept the like, you know, No contextualization. It, it talk about we're not not comparing Barton, Fake, and Hell Caesar, I don't, I'm going to kind of defend, her, defend us on that front. The idea of accept the mystery is indeed an important one, and I think something we do need to embrace in the, the work of the Coen Brothers. However, that should not keep us from trying to figure out what's going on <laughs> trying to find some meaning and comparing them I, I mean I, it is significant to me that both films are about capital pictures for example it is significant there are significant callbacks between relationships between Hail Caesar and Barton Fink and Hale Caesar and a bunch of other films that they've done and Barton Fink and a bunch of other films that they've done. You have to make making those comparisons that's part of assessing careers that's part of criticism that's something that we should do but I think because I do, again I do think Accept the Mystery is you know an important thing ultimately particularly where the film is mysterious as Barton Fink. But, I, think, uh,
3: I think see His Girl's Friday it's wonderful. Yeah. yeah uh-huh. you're, you're, <laughs> just you're missing out. Proxy. Oh boy you're going to love His Girl Friday. Uh, uh, <laughs> or and, Solomon's yeah. Travels for that matter. And you know perhaps you'll see some connections that others have seen because they are there. I like the other two letters uh quite a bit. I think that's a very um interesting working metaphor for what what Hale, what's going on in Hail Caesar. And and I, I think I know we touched on the Christian themes, but we probably sold them short a little. Um, you know, a couple people have, have mentioned, Tom Sharpling among them, um, have mentioned that, you know, it's, it's sort of the Christian, a serious man sort of taking the same spirit of inquiry of, of, uh, of that film and applying it to Christianity and, 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 and dropping in an unlikely setting. And I think that is uh, tough to deny with this film. And, I think, and I, th- I think we did touch on this where I think with the Coens, I don't know that there's necessarily piety or, 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 or actual faith driving these inquiries, but I think there's a lot of respect for the characters who are searching for these things and using religion to do that. I'm intrigued by the
1: second letter too about yeah, too. About, sure about about it, it about looking at Barton Fink through a queer lens. I mean, one thing that the letter writer did not mention is his ability to write after he perhaps comes to terms with all these things. Maybe that's maybe that's what's keeping holding him back. He talks about that letting go a little bit at that moment, and that's the moment that the writing writer's block goes away and he starts to write.
0: I mean, I think it's a really interesting lens. I find it a little hard to buy, if only because of the way the sex scene with Judy Davis is shot, the degree that he doesn't seem to go into it, to me at least, like reluctantly, or like he's trying to force himself. He doesn't seem like ambivalent or diffident or confused Mm -hmm. at all. It seems to me like... It's shot in a very like gung ho, go for it kind of way. And it's, it seems to be one of the few moments in the film where he doesn't feel confusion. You know, I, I, I know many gay friends who have gone through a phase of, I've found a person of the opposite gender who I like. Maybe this is me fixing all of my problems. And obviously it doesn't last long. So, you know, maybe, maybe it's that. I think this is a, a real indication that, you know, you really can, if, if you can't find honest representations of yourself on screen. You can find shadows of yourself on screen in a, like a variety of interesting ways and you can kind of claim any film you want for your own.
3: Yeah, I don't think it's the key that unlocks the movie but I think it points out all the really relevant examples of, of the physicality and, and intimacy between the two people as being something that probably hasn't been explored enough when we talked about the movie.
1: Yeah, it's a great it's a great argument. I mean, yeah, it's good, good good evidence for sure.
0: As always, we love when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. It gives us a lot to think and talk about. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773 234 9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on our website. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll get deeper into the Wicker Man, we'll find out who found the witch scary, and we'll talk about whether that's an important metric, and we'll ask ourselves why kids singing songs is always so damn spooky in movies. You'll also get to hear this.
2: First search for corn rig on Google is, corn rigs and barley rigs, what are they? (laughs) Yahoo answers, I know that corn rigs are bonnie and all, but why, how, and what are they?
0: Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice, and follow us on Twitter at Next Pod. So you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, I'm just going to go take this baby and this mortar and pestle into the back room. No particular reason. My skin's just feeling <laughs> a little dry right now, guys.